what I realize I've been teasing y'all about going through Second Peter together. Uh, I'm actually studying Second Peter. I'm down to four commentaries of 25 or 30. Lost track of how many I've acquired in preparation for our study, but as we've been studying Christ's letters to the seven churches in Revelation on Wednesday night, the Lord just keeps bringing to my, to my mind a, a number of parallel passages in His Word which address the same issues that Christ addressed in these letters, and they seem worthy of extra study, deeper thought. One of the recurring themes that we've seen so far in, in several, several of the letters on Wednesday nights is sexual immorality. Uh, sexual immorality is one of the most frequently mentioned sins in the Bible. It is perhaps the most alluring and addicting sin known to man. From Genesis to Revelation, sexual sin is pervasive, not only among pagan people, but sadly even among God's people. It all started with the demonic cohabitation between the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis 6, which corrupted mankind to the point that God flooded the earth and started all over again. Abraham, the, the father of God's people, committed adultery with his wife's maidservant, Lot had to be rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah when God torched it because of homosexuality. Lot's own daughters got him drunk, and he committed incest with them. Jacob's daughter, Dinah, was raped. Judah thought his daughter-in-law was a prostitute and fathered an illegitimate child through her. An unfaithful wife tried to seduce Joseph. The people of Israel participated in an orgy at the foot of Mount Sinai while God was giving them the Ten Commandments. And as you know, they later got sexually involved with the Canaanites against God's explicit command. Samson was controlled by his lust. The men of Gibeah brutally gang-raped a Levite's concubine. David slept with another man's wife. David's son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and on and on it goes, and that's just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus affirmed that sexual immorality violates the marriage covenant and is grounds for divorce, while at the same time, he rescued and restored a woman caught in the act of adultery. Paul included sexual immorality in the list of sins that we need to put off and mortify and warn people to flee from sexual immorality and encourage people to get married as a safeguard against sexual immorality and said there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among believers. I think Paul's clearest and most direct instruction on sexual immorality is found in his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. And I want to invite you to turn with me there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want to look with you this morning at verses 3 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he rejects this, is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Father, based on the testimony of Scripture, along with our own personal experience, it seems that sexual morality is one of the biggest hindrances to being fully devoted to you and and living a godly life that pleases you. And no other sin seems to have greater potential to wreck our lives, to ruin our relationship with you and others than sexual sin. And Lord, your word talks a lot about it, but it doesn't seem like we talk a lot about it in the church. We let the world do all the talking. And so, Father, thank you for the opportunity for me to talk about this subject this morning. And as I address this this delicate subject, I ask that you would guard my mouth from saying anything inappropriate or counterproductive, that I would not say anything unholy as I'm attempting to help others be holy, and that I would not be guilty of stirring up people's passions while helping them control their passions. And so, Lord, would you... Be gracious to give us help and hope from this text today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it goes without saying that we live in a sex-crazed, sex-saturated society where we are relentlessly bombarded by all sorts of sexual images and scenarios via television shows and commercials, and the internet, and streaming services, and social media feeds, and billboards, and magazine racks, and on and on. I was thinking, we're probably exposed to more sexual content in one week than our grandparents were perhaps in their lifetime. Pornographic material has never been more accessible and affordable. And so all of us live with the pressure of sexual temptation. You may be sitting here this morning feeling overwhelmed by the lure of lust. Some of you may be in sexual sin right now. Others of you may be wondering if it's even possible to stay pure in in such an impure world. Well, as we've been learning on Wednesday nights, the Greek culture that these churches were in in the first century was very immoral. Immorality was a way of life. Sex was not only permitted, it was promoted. And what I mean by that is that sex with a prostitute was considered an act of worship. That's like next level. And what we've seen so far in the cities in Revelation 2 was also true of the city of Thessalonica. And so the pressure to give in to sexual temptation must have been intense for the believers that Paul was writing to in this letter. It would have been easy for them to think that that it's impossible to live a pure life, but Paul wanted them to know that sexual purity was possible, is possible. 
And so in this passage, he presented, some, presented them with some, some practical principles that make purity possible. And so that's what I want to see in this text today, seven practical principles that make purity possible. And the point is this, no one stays pure by accident. But if we diligently apply these basic principles to our lives on a daily basis with the help of the Holy Spirit, it will be possible for us to live a pure life in an impure world. You say, what are these principles? Well, number one, abstain from every kind of sexual sin. Abstain from every kind of sexual sin. Notice our text, verse 3, for this is the will of God. The Christian life boils down to wanting to do what God wants you to do rather than doing what you want to do. That's the Christian life. And what does God want for us? He wants us to be holy. He says, it is God's will, your sanctification. Whenever we commit sexual sin, what we're saying, what we're demonstrating is that what we want is more important than what God wants. Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. God wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be set apart from sin. Sanctification, we know, is that, that progressive process that a Christian goes through after they get saved by which they become less and less sinful and more and more like Christ. And this is the theme of this passage. Notice, not only does he mention that word sanctification in verse 3, he mentions it again in verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And again in verse 7, for God has not called us for, this purpose, for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So this whole passage is all about sexual sanctification. And notice he gives the first command here. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, let me be more specific, that you abstain from sexual morality. That word abstain means to avoid something, to not do something, to go without something. And even the world has picked up on that word, abstain, and they have uh, included it in one of sev- as one of several options to consider if you're going to be sexually active. Well, I would say this, that abstinence is not one of several options. It's not even the best option. According to God's word, it's the only option. But you wouldn't know that by the big safe sex push that we have in our culture. The philosophy is when we, you know, we can't expect people to wait until they're married to have sex, so it's wise to encourage them to at least wear something to protect themselves. Well, this may come as a shock to you, but I agree with that philosophy that if you're going to have sex, you need to wear something to protect yourself. The first time I had sex, I chose to wear something to protect myself. It's called a wedding ring. This is is God's safe sex program right here. And so he says it's God's will 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, just a simple word there in the Greek is porneia, where we get, obviously, the word pornography. But that word porneia was a, a general word that described anything that goes against God's design for sex. So then the question we need to ask ourselves is, okay, what is God's design for sex? And that might seem like a strange question to some of you because the way the world has perverted sex, you would never know that it was God's idea to begin with. Sex is not bad. It's not dirty. You may have heard me mention before, I, I, I always wanted to write a book titled Sex is Not a Four-Letter Word. Get it? It's three letters. But the whole point is it's not a, not a dirty thing. Some of you guys just got that, right? On the other hand, sex is a holy, beautiful act that God designed for a husband and wife to physically experience oneness and to express the love they have for one another in the most intimate way possible. You could liken sex to God's wedding present that he gives to a man and a woman to be opened on their wedding night. And trust me, it's way better than any blender or air fryer you'll ever get. And I think it should be every young couple's goal to be able to, on their wedding night, kneel down together next to that bed and thank God for his grace in keeping them pure and thanking him for the gift that they're about to enjoy and that he would enjoy watching because it's his gift to them. I heard somebody say one time that having sex glorifies God as much as having your quiet time. But see, we need to understand the purpose, the purpose of sex. There's really three purposes if you look at the scripture. Uh, number one, it, 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 the purpose was for procreation, Genesis 1.28 uh, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. So sex is for procreation. Number two, sex is for protection. For protection. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, because of immorality, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And later he went on to say, if they don't have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So it's for protection. And thirdly, it's for pleasure. It's for pleasure. And you just need to go back to Proverbs chapter 5, where the dad was telling his son that he should find great pleasure in the wife of his youth. Song of Solomon is in the Bible for a reason. And it's not just some weird allegory about our relationship with Christ. 
It's, it's about a, a couple, a, a historical couple who, who, who met one another and began to date and got engaged and got married and the beauty of, 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 of biblical romance. And it's all there to, to watch so we could see the enjoyment that that couple uh, had in one another under God. You could think about it this way. If you can answer yes to these three questions, you can have as much sex as you want. Now, that made the high school kids wake up in the first service. They're like, really, pastor? Tell me what those questions are. I'm all ears, right? Well, number one, is it between a man and a woman? That rules out a lot of what's going on in our world today. Number two, is it with your husband or your wife? That also rules out a lot of what's going on in the world today. And thirdly, is it for the pleasure of your spouse? Something, a question that's not often asked. Am I doing this for my pleasure or or am I doing this for their pleasure? In other words, it's selfless. I think those three questions really summarize everything that the Bible says about sex. And any violation of those three questions or those three principles constitutes sexual sin. Premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, which is mentioned sadly in the scriptures, pornography, masturbation. I think this even includes what goes on in our minds. We're talking about lustful thoughts here. And just because you haven't had sex doesn't necessarily mean you've abstained from sexual morality. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter seven, or excuse me, Matthew chapter five, verse twenty-seven. He said, "You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart." If your eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for, your, for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So Jesus took sexual sin very seriously, even down to what goes on in our minds. So the first principle here is very simple. Purity is possible if we abstain from every kind of sexual sin. You say, that's not really helpful. That's pretty much saying the same thing, right? Well, let's get more specific. Paul gets more specific here. Number two, learn to have self-control. Learn to have self-control. Look at verse four. That each of you, again, this is the will of God, your sanctification that you've saved from sexual morality, and here it is, the will of God is that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he says, this is something that we need to know how to do. This is, again, in other words, we, we don't automatically or naturally know how to do it. We need to learn how to do it. We need to be taught how to do it. We need to practice doing it. We need the know-how or the skill to control our desires and our bodies. I think that's what possess his own vessel is referring to there. It's not your wife. That's what some... Bible uh, students say or scholars say that this is talking about your wife. No, I think it's talking about your body, your vessel. And this involves every part of our body, that we need to control every part of our body in a holy and pure way, not just the reproductive organs, 
We need to control our mind. What we think about, Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, let your mind dwell on these things. We need to also possess our eyes and what we look at. Psalm 101 verse 3, the psalmist says to, that he would not put any unclean thing before his eyes. We need to possess our ears and what we listen to and the music that, that goes into our minds and our hearts and the conversations with our uh, associates and our companions and our friends. 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. We need to possess our mouths, what we talk about. Ephesians chapter five, verse three, Paul said this, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, and there must, not be, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. We also need to possess our hands and what we touch. And Matthew 5.30 says, if your hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. Not literally, right, but take radical steps, right, to avoid sinning with your hands. And then finally, we also need to possess our feet. We need to control where we go. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. The point is this. Usually, it's all the other parts of the body that end up getting the sexual parts in trouble. A person doesn't just wake up one morning and go have sex with someone. They watch it, they hear about it, they talk about it, they hang around it, they think about it, and the next thing you know, they're doing it. Notice, he says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Not like unbelievers who have no control over their body. They're, they're controlled and ruled by their passions and, and lust. They're just, they're out of control. They're like a dog in heat. If you ever had a dog in heat, they do crazy things. They'll chew their way out of a house. They'll jump over walls. They'll dig under fences. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, this is how Paul described us before we were saved. He says, walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. In other words, you can never get enough. You can't sleep with enough people. You can't look at enough porn sites. One more time, one more look never satisfies. And the reason why the Gentiles have lack self-control is because they don't know God. Knowing God is the key to having control over our bodies. And the reason why some of you lack self-control is because you don't know God. You don't have a relationship with God. Because when someone comes to know God through his son, Jesus Christ, their attitude towards sex changes, and so does their ability to control their sexual desires. I love how Paul talks about the believers in Corinth. And if there was a, a, an immoral city in the first century, I mean, Corinth probably would take the cake. It just, just uh, the, even the expression Corinthianized was a, a term they would use for sexual morality of all kinds. 
But notice how he describes them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And then he goes on, in light of that, he says this, verse 18, flee immorality, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So self-control, controlling your body, is the key to staying sexually pure. Self-control and and sex are inseparable, at least Paul indicated that in 1 Corinthians 7. I already read this verse 5. He he says, stop um, depriving one another except for agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of what? Self-control. And again, if they lack self-control, let them get married. Have you ever wondered why God would give us such strong desires for sex in our early teen years if he knew most of us wouldn't be able to have those desires fulfilled until we were in our 20s or 30s when we got married? I would suggest to you that it was simply so we could learn how to have self-control. Because the pattern of purity that we set before we're married will be the pattern of purity that we keep after we're married. Don't don't, don't think getting married will instantly solve your lack of self-control. If you struggle with sexual temptation before you're married, you will struggle with it after you get married. And the sad reality is this. A person without self-control is defenseless against sexual temptation. Proverbs 25, 28, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. You're like a a city without walls. I mean, enemies can just come in and and, and go. They can come and go as they please. You have no defense. So purity is possible if you have self-control. Number three Purity is possible if you honor and serve other people. Purity is possible if you honor and serve other people. Notice verse 6. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Again, what is the will of God? That no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. So in the matter of sexual purity, there are two things we should never do to someone else. Number one, we should not transgress which means to overstep a boundary, to go beyond or exceed the proper limits, to cross over the line, to go too far. And is that not the classic question that young people ask? Well, how far is too far? What they're actually asking is how far can I go without going all the way? And well, you're saying that's not sin leading up to all that? The question, the real question is, how holy can I be? That's that's the question you should be asking. So don't transgress 
someone else. Number two, don't defraud, which was a, a word that was used back then of a business transaction to, to selfishly uh, attempt to gain more at all costs while disregarding the other person's rights. That's what it meant to defraud, to take advantage of someone, to take more than is due you, to take something that doesn't belong to you, to steal or rob or rip them off. So these are vivid words that Paul used to describe the violation that takes place when people engage in inappropriate sexual activity. So we need to ask ourselves the question, well, what is the opposite of transgressing and defrauding someone? I think it's honoring and serving them. And so, man, let's talk about how we can honor and serve our brothers and sisters. Women are turned on by words and by touch. So we need to be careful what we say and how we touch them and how we talk to them and the amount of time we spend with them. We should never touch a woman or talk to a woman in a way that we wouldn't want another man talking to or touching our wife or our future wife. Men, we can honor and serve our brothers by keeping a safe distance from their wife. Don't share intimate details about your life with another woman. Don't don't have a, a private meal with them. Don't ride in the car alone with them. Don't go over to their house when their husband is not at home. Don't get in the habit of texting them or emailing them without perhaps copying their husband on the text or the email. Joseph is a a great example of this. Genesis 39, verse 8. Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you. Who's you? His wife, right? Because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Here's this this, this desperate housewife throwing herself at him. And he says, I, 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 yeah, this would be so easy for me to do this. I've got all the authority in this house. But guess what? You're off limits because you're already married. And, and he wanted to honor and serve Potiphar, his pagan boss, Ladies, how about you? How can you serve your brothers and sisters? You need to understand this. If you don't already, men are turned on by sight, and so you need to be careful by, about how you dress and how you act around them. Men have a hard enough time with their imagination. It doesn't help when a woman dresses in a way that doesn't leave much to the imagination, as they say. So never wear things that expose or emphasize the parts of your body that God intended to be kept private or for only your husband to enjoy. I've never seen a book on it, but somebody should write it, and that is The Theology of Clothes. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says that when Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were open and they recognized, they realized they were naked, as we say here in the South, right? And what is the first thing they did? They designed some clothes out of fig leaves to cover their private parts. And guess what? God went the next 
the extra mile, he killed an animal and gave them a full set of clothes, apparently. And the point is this, that, that God designed clothes to conceal, not reveal. To hide the private parts of our bodies, not to show them off. And our sinful world has reversed that principle completely. Clothes today are, are designed to reveal and appeal, to accentuate, to highlight parts of a woman's body. And so, ladies, just honor and serve your brothers by not causing them to stumble, by flirting with them or flaunting yourself in front of them. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. So period is possible if we honor and serve other people. Number four, purity is possible if we fear the wrath of God. Purity is possible if we fear the wrath of God. Notice the rest of verse six, that no man transgressed and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So Paul had already warned them about these things, which I think are sexual morality, a lack of self-control, expressing lustful passion, transgressing and defrauding uh, other people. And he said, God is the avenger of all these things. There are a few sins that are more offensive to God than sexual sin. He's angered, he's grieved when we violate his designed for sex. And he will not let sexual sin go unpunished. Hebrews 13.4 says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Romans 12.19 says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You say, well, what if I can do it and not get caught? Well, we need to always remember two things. Number one, God sees every sexual sin. God sees every sexual sin. And I say that because sexual sins are usually secret sins, right? They're committed in the privacy of our own thoughts or on the television after everyone else has gone to bed and or a hotel room on a business trip, or a computer behind closed doors. But even if no one sees you, God is watching the entire time. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. J.C. Ryle Anglican Bishop wrote a helpful little book called Thoughts for Young Men. Um, I think it could, could have simply been titled Thoughts for Everyone. <laughs> it's not just young men. And he has a little section about the omniscience and omnipresence of God, and he refers to it as the eye of God. And this is what he said, quote, resolve never to forget the eye of God. The eye of God. 
Think of that. Everywhere, in every house, in every field, in every room, in every company, alone or in a crowd, the eye of God always upon you. You may deceive your parents or employers. You may tell them falsehoods and be one thing before their faces and another thing behind their backs, but you cannot deceive God. He knows you through and through. He has set your most secret sins in the light of his countenance, and they will one day come out before the world to your shame unless you take heed. How little is this really felt? How many things are done continually which men would never do if they thought they were seen? How many matters are transacted in the chambers of imagination which would never bear the light of day? Yes, men entertain thoughts in private and say words in private and do acts in private which they would be ashamed and blush to have exposed to the world. The sound of a footstep coming has stopped many a deed of wickedness. A knock at the door has caused many an evil work to be hastily suspended and hurriedly laid aside. But oh, what miserable, driveling folly is all this. There is an all-seeing witness with us wherever we go. Lock the door. Draw down the blinds. Close the shutters. Put out the light. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference. God is everywhere. You cannot shut him out or prevent his seeing. Live as in the sight of God. That's the Coram Deo concept, isn't it? Living before the face of God. So we need to remember that God sees every sexual sin. Number two, we need to remember that God punishes every sexual sin. God punishes every sexual sin. And he has many different ways to punish sin. It may not be the way you assume he will punish you or discipline you. But the point is, there's no foolproof way to protect yourself from the consequences of sexual sin. There's no such thing as safe sex outside of the bounds of marriage. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. My mom wore that verse out on me when I was a little kid. Proverbs 10, 9, he who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his way will be found out. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, someone who has a, a lifestyle of sexual morality or impurity. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And by the way, the greatest punishment for sin is not getting caught. Getting caught in sexual sin is God's mercy. Falling deeper Getting deeper into sexual sin, that's God's wrath. Romans 1, that God gave them over, right? He gave them what they, exactly what they wanted. I would suggest a practical exercise you could do, and that is make a list of the awful consequences of committing sexual sin. Just, just sit down sometime and just write, make a list, and and, and, and write out, what, what would be the consequence in regards to my relationship with my husband or my wife? How would it affect my relationship with my kids? How would it, how would it affect my family? How would, it, how would it affect my relationship with 
God in Christ? How would it affect my witness for Christ in my family, in my neighborhood, in my community, in my church? Purity is possible if you fear God's wrath. We're talking about a healthy fear here. Number five, remember your purpose as a Christian. You want to stay pure in an impure world? Remember your purpose as a Christian. Notice verse seven, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. God didn't save us so we could stay impure, but to make us pure. The goal of the Christian life is to become holy like like he is holy. And so again, he mentions sanctification here, which is the process that we all go through as believers of being set apart from sin and being more purified and conformed to the image of Christ. And sexual sin frustrates that and hinders that process, the sanctification process. It's, it's as if God, you know, comes down and plucks us out of the muck of this world and brings us over here and he cleans us all off and, you know, gets us all shiny and we're, 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 we're all cleaned up and all of a sudden we run right back into the muck, like, like a pig running back into the pig pen. It's, it's counterproductive. We're going in the wrong direction here. We're going backwards in our sanctification. And so we need to be more passionate about fulfilling God's eternal plan or desire to make us mature in Christ than we are about fulfilling our temporary desires to make ourselves feel good in that moment. Samson is a good example of this. He forgot his purpose. God had raised them up to be a judge over the nation of Israel to deliver them from the Philistines and and, and yet all he could see was the next pretty girl in front of him. He lost sight of his purpose. Purity is possible if if we remember our purpose as Christians. Number six, we need to trust and obey what God says. We need to trust and obey what God says. Notice verse eight. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul wanted his readers to know, he wanted us to know, that if we reject or ignore or treat as unimportant all that he has told us in this passage about sexual purity, we're not rejecting him, we're rejecting God. What you're hearing today isn't Paul's words or my words, these are God's words. And the key to staying sexually pure is to trust and obey God's word. Don't believe the world's lie that getting involved in sexual morality will make you happy. No, it will destroy you. You don't have time to look at it, but you could write down Proverbs 7. And that faithful dad raising his son there and passing on wisdom to him in Proverbs 7 talks about the immoral woman who was representative of sexual immorality and he was pleading with his son to to wisely avoid the immoral woman and he describes her as a black widow 
You know what a black widow does, right? They, they mate with their partner and then they kill their partner. And that's, that's what sexual morality does. It, 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 it entices you, it draws you in, and then it kills you. Lust tricks us into thinking that it will satisfy us, it will bring us pleasure. But we need to believe God when he says it will not satisfy us, it will not bring us pleasure. Only he can give us lasting pleasure. I used to have a statement that hung on my wall in my uh, home office that I just kind of collected from different things I had read over the years, and it was all about the deceptive and destructive nature of lust, and I just wanted it in my face to, to remind me as often as possible, and this is what it said. Lust is a liar. Don't believe it. It never satisfies. It always leaves you feeling dirty, discouraged, and depressed, and desiring more, and eventually it will destroy your life. The key to holiness is satisfaction in God, believing that he is to be desired more than anything else this world has to offer. We must believe that only he can truly satisfy us. We must trade the passing pleasures of sin for the lasting pleasures of God. You might have heard a little John Piper in there. He helped me design that quote. The bottom line is, who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? Satan in the world? Or God in his word? We got into this mess to begin with because someone decided they were going to believe Satan rather than God. When Satan shows up in the garden and said to Eve, uh, did God really say that if you eat this, you're going to die? Well, that's, that's not really what he meant. He just didn't want you to have the knowledge that he has and, and, and become like him. And that's why he told you not to eat it. And she's like, oh, really? And she saw that it was good and, 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 and it tasted good. And so uh, let's try it. And we are, that's how we got into this mess, right? <laughs> that, that someone decided to believe Satan rather than God. And that's the battle every day for every one of us. Who we're going to believe, who we're going to trust, who we're going to obey. Purity is possible if we trust the promises of God that true happiness and satisfaction can only be found in Him, not in the things of this world. And then lastly, number seven, purity is possible if we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Purity is, poss- purity is possible if we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Notice the end of verse 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now again, at first glance, you might, you might just say, well, that's just kind of an unimportant phrase that Paul just tacked on there at the end to sound spiritual. But I think that Paul was wanting to encourage us by giving us a powerful reminder of the one who is the ultimate source of our sexual sanctification. The Holy Spirit is the primary means by which we are sanctified. He's the one who makes purity possible. He is holy. The Spirit is holy, and his primary job is to make us holy. 
And notice how Paul said it here, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That word gives there is in the present tense, which means it's a continuous action. It's something that's repeated over and over again. And so God is continually, quote unquote, giving us the Holy Spirit. And so he doesn't just command us to be holy. He provides us with the power to be holy. So he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us be holy. And at the very moment that we're feeling like giving in to the pressure of sexual sin, God is giving us the powerful presence of his spirit to help us stay holy. And the way to keep from giving in to the sexual pressure which constantly inundates us is by giving in or yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit who constantly indwells us. Romans 8, 13, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5, 16, walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Purity is possible if we yield, give in, submit to the Holy Spirit. So, it is possible to stay pure in an impure world. Some of you are thinking right now, well, pastor, you got to me too late because I've already blown it. This message is a day late and a dollar short. I've already gone too far. I've already crossed the line. I've already transgressed and defrauded someone. What do I do now? I've got three simple steps for you to follow. You ready? Number one, confess your sin to God and whoever you sinned against and seek both of their forgiveness. Seek God's forgiveness and seek their forgiveness. Number two, cut off that relationship or set boundaries so it doesn't happen again. Cut off that relationship or set Boundaries so it doesn't happen again. Thirdly, confide in someone who can hold you accountable in your pursuit of purity. Confide in someone who can hold you accountable in your pursuit of purity. That might be your mom or dad. Might be a brother or sister. Might be someone who disciples you. Might be your grow group leader. Might be an elder. Might be a pastor. But you need to tell somebody because as long as it's a secret, it holds power over you. But the moment you make it public and somebody else knows, there's just something about that that is liberating. It's freeing. I'll never forget the first scary step I took in my journey to gain victory over sexual sin, I was a high school kid serving at a summer camp back in New England. And I hated when I gave in to sexual temptation and I would confess it to the Lord and I'd repent and I'd cry. And, but then a day later, a week later, a month later, I'd be doing it again. And so finally one night in frustration, I 
pulled aside the director of the camp. His name was Greg Swenson. I'll never forget him. And it was after all the kids had gone to bed and we were there up all by ourselves in the cafeteria and all the lights were off and we sat under the exit light. I'll never forget it. The, the red glow of the exit light. We're sitting there. And I just said, Greg, I got to tell you something, man. I'm really struggling with sexual sin in my life. And I just came clean. And he was so gracious and wise and kind. He counseled me. He confronted me. Uh, he comforted me. He just responded, like, perfectly. And I'll never forget that moment. I felt like I had been let out of a cage um, because somebody else knew, and now somebody could help me to be a, a, a holy man. So some of you might have to have that scary conversation with someone today or this week. It's not going to be easy, but I'd encourage you to have that. And uh, it will be liberating for you. And it will be, be, the, be the beginning of a whole new trajectory in your relationship with Christ and your relationship perhaps with your husband or wife or your parents or whoever is affected by your sin and maybe doesn't even know it. Let me remind you as we close, Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope of that, that verse that we are those that tend to conceal and hide our sin. It's part of our sinful nature but you encourage us to confess our sin and forsake it so that we could experience your compassion. And oftentimes that compassion comes through the compassion of your people and even those who maybe we've sinned against and our sin is hurt, that they can demonstrate compassion towards us. And so, Lord, would you be gracious to all of us as we, we are living in a very impure world but thank you for making purity possible because of the Holy Spirit who you've given to dwell within us. And I pray that we make full access, fully utilize the power that's available through him to say no to sexual temptation, that we would be pure and holy people the way you uh, intended us to be. And Lord, that we will be set apart from the world around us and this would give us opportunities to share the good news, the hope of the gospel with others so that they can be delivered and rescued from slavery to sin as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.